Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. For more information about location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. Please feel free to open your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Well, I have a, two stories to tell. I was informed that my attire has not been right since being here in your wonderful church. And so I was given some proper attire to wear the next time that I come, and I promised to wear them. <laughs> I promise to wear them the next Sunday that I'm here to preach. (laughs) And whoever would do that, I just can't imagine Randy and Mary thinking about something like that. (laughs) The second thing that I want to tell you is a story I told a couple of you, I think it was the day before yesterday. Margaret was sitting with her girls one time, and our youngest daughter told her, Mom, we're so glad you like upbeat Christian music, because that means when we get old like you, we'll like it too. (laughs) Our God is a sovereign God who has a perfect plan for the world and all of its inhabitants. I told you that several times. But as we surrender our lives to His plan... As we do that by faith, we have to believe that his plan is perfect, and then we, by faith, have to begin to live that plan. And many times, his plan doesn't really make a lot of sense to us, and and it's real difficult for us to grasp what he's trying to get us to do and and the work that he's asking us to, to partake of. But as we go to that plan and we begin to live his plan, then we begin to see his perfection. We must believe that it's perfect and we must act accordingly before we will experience it. And that's where faith comes in. When you think about the perfection of God's plan, I want you to think for just a moment about just the perfection of his creation. Within your body, you have a pump. And this pump beats continually. The pump is totally self-contained, has no power source other than the power source that God placed within you when you were conceived in the womb. And as this pump pumps, it never misses a beat, takes very little maintenance, and it can last for 70, 80, 90, 100 years. No pump that man has ever invented has been able to do that. And as it beats, it takes the blood and it moves the blood through the arteries down the arm into the cell. And in the cell, it takes that oxygen that's in that blood, it takes the oxygen out and gives it to the cell to live. And in exchange, it exchanges back carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide is then taken through the veins 
and goes up through the filtration system that God placed within us in the lungs and all the other things that are there. We then expel the carbon dioxide and God in his perfection created the plants to need the very thing we expel. As we expel that and give it to the plants, then the plants take the carbon dioxide and they go through the process. And as they're through, finished with their process, they give back to us the oxygen that we need. The blood flow, the heart, the oxygen, the carbon dioxide, that's the perfection of God. Think about the nervous system that we have. We have a nervous system where I can think a thought, move your finger, and that thought will run out to my arm through the nervous, the nerves that I have, and my finger will move. And again, totally self-contained, electrical impulse going out. Where does the electrical impulse come? It comes from the creation of God placed within us. And as that electrical impulse runs out, you can actually measure the electrical impulse. And it's just the most amazing thing when we consider those impulses are part of God's perfection. You go one step further and you think about the world. God placed in the sky the North Star. God placed in the Northern Hemisphere magnetic north and then he allowed us to discover that we could use those two things to find our way and we've been finding our way for hundreds of years because God made provision for us to do that can we understand that the same God that formed the human body that established the oxygen carbon dioxide relationship that said magnetic north and north star that same God has created a plan that is perfect for how we are to manage our families. But the thing is, we have to do it his way. In order to, to experience the perfection of his plan in our family, we have to do it his way. He will, not, he will not empower anything that we do that's not done his way. So he gives us instructions, and as we, by faith, believe those instructions, and we, by faith, begin to do those instructions, then we will experience his power and see the miracles that he has in the perfection of what we can do as a family. When we look at the scriptures, we readily see that marriage and family relationships are straight from God. He created them. If we believe that God created the marriage and family relationships, then shouldn't we believe that they would have a spiritual dynamic? You know, Sunday I told you about the statistic on marriage. One out of two marriages end in divorce. Three out of four second marriages end in divorce. But those marriages where the people went to church together, studied the word together, and prayed together, the divorce rate was 1 out of 1,100. 1 out of 2, 3 out of 4, 1 out of 1,100. What makes the difference? The spiritual dynamic. We have to understand 
in marriage, in families, in all relationships, there is a spiritual dynamic that makes them work. And when we begin to live and, and understand that spiritual dynamic, then we begin to experience all that God promises us. Several years ago, Margaret was in the church sanctuary at First Baptist Hondo alone with God, and she actually had a semi-encounter with him, and I'm going to let her tell you the story. Well, when Les and I moved to Hondo the first time and bought the Western Auto Store, uh, we had been married seven years. We had two little girls, and we had pretty much put God on the back burner of our life that entire time. And I thought that we would live in Hondo the rest of our lives and own that store the rest of our lives. And I told Les, I said, we have got to settle down, and we have got to get our children in church. We have got to get in church. And he agreed, and we went down and joined First Baptist Church. And pretty soon we were doing all those churchy things that church people do. Uh, I'd start teaching Sunday school. I'd start a children's choir. Eventually I was asked to lead the sanctuary choir. Les was chairman of the finance committee, and he wasn't even saved. And, uh, I made a good chairman. <laughs> and um, we were doing all these churchy things. And I thought in my mind, the more I could do for God, the happier I would be. And yet I was miserable on the inside. And I had this encounter with God alone in our church sanctuary, and I found myself crying out to God, God, what is this Christian life all about? Because there just doesn't seem to be much to it. I said, I hear my pastor preach that when you've repented of your sins and you invite Jesus in your life, he brings with him love, joy, and peace. And I said, God, I know I've done that, and I know I have a family that loves me, but I have no joy and no peace. What's wrong with me? And I wish I could tell you I got it right with God that day, but I walked out of that sanctuary and just shrugged my shoulders and just said, you know, God, I don't get it. But I said, there's got to be more to it than going to church because church is not getting it for me. Now, don't hear me say that going to church is not good, okay? I didn't say that. And uh, so years went by, and then Les got saved. And he had the benefit of the man who led the Lord, uh, led him to the Lord, uh, mentoring him. Our pastor was mentoring him. And I mean, he was growing by leaps and bounds. And I mean, our lives turned upside down. He was at the church more than he was at the store. The whole town knew about it. It's like, what's happened to Les? And then after about a year, people began to say things to me that terrified me, like, Margaret, we think Les is going to be a preacher. And after I assured them he was not going to be a preacher, I would go down to the Western Auto Store and I would say, Les, so-and-so told me they think you're going to be a preacher. You're not going to be a preacher, are you? Please tell me you're not going to be a preacher. And he would always say the same thing to me, and this happened many times over the course of years. Many times. Margaret, I'm a Western Auto dealer. And I thought, oh, thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you. But you know, God is so gracious because he knows I don't handle change well. When there's a major change coming, he lets me know way ahead of time. So that he begin, can begin to work in my life, getting me on board so that when it comes, I am ready to go, happy about it. But it was during this time that my very dearest friend called me one day and she said, Morgan, I want, want to invite you to a ladies' Bible study. I feel led to start in my home one morning a week. And I said, I'll be there. And after I went to that Bible study for several weeks, I suddenly felt the need to read the Bible. And I had the luxury of getting my family out the door every morning and having a couple of hours before I had to be at the Western Auto Store. And I confess to you, I did not know there was Bible study plans. I did not know I could open the Word anywhere and say, God, what do you want to say to me today? 
I started where you start every book at the beginning, Genesis 1-1. But I want you to know, God began to honor that. And he began to make changes in my life. And it wasn't long before I could see, I'm different. And I began to see what had been missing in my life. And I had had a short, quick temper my whole adult life. Suddenly it was gone. And I wanted to say to Les, Les, I've changed. Have you noticed? But I didn't have the nerve. And finally, after months, I, I asked him, I said, have you noticed? He went, good Lord, woman, yes, I live with you every day, don't I? <laughs> and I like it. I like it. I'm like, oh, God, thank you. It's not just me. He notices it, too. And I had been a screamer at my children. I couldn't discipline them without screaming at them. And then suddenly, I was calmly dealing with them, giving them the respect that they needed and y'all, I was addicted to soap operas. I mean, I could not go through the day without General Hospital and One Life to Live. And let, in fact, Les sicked our pastor on me, and he came to visit me with the strict purpose in mind to tell me that those soap operas were straight from the pits of hell, and I need to quit watching them. Now, the fact that I didn't tell him he could go there was a miracle. <laughs> because I love those soap operas. But I want you to know, as he began to replace in me, him, and fill me up with him, y'all, those soap operas were gone, and I don't even know how they went until they were gone, and it's like, God, how did you do that? And y'all, I want to say to you today, my definition of the Christian life is this, it is exciting, it is exhilarating, and it can be terrifying all at the same time. But when you fill yourself up with Jesus, your life will not be boring. And one of the things that we want to give you tonight, and Verna, you have been a doll. This woman is great. She has made copies of so many things. But tonight, yes, you can give her a hand. That would be wonderful. Thank you. She has made a copy of a Bible study program that we love to give out. I know many of you may already be involved in Bible studies. You may already have your own Bible study program. Let me encourage you to pick this up anyway and see if it might be something that you might like to have. There's four passages of Scripture. It's based upon 25 days a month because I guess they, whoever made it up knew you would miss some days. And if you read every Scripture every day, you'll read through the whole Bible in a year. But let me say this to you. When people come up after I've given this testimony and say, well, I think I've read the Bible through seven times, I really want to say to them, so what? Because it doesn't matter how much you read it. It's what you do with what you do read. And y'all, I want to encourage you, get in the Word. It is what's changed my life, and I have not looked back for 25-plus years. It is God getting to know God deeply and intimately and what He wants for your life. And I want to tell you, I also journal and when, I, when God tells me something, I will write it down. And I will write down my prayer request. And the neatest thing is to go back and see how God has answered prayer. It is wonderful. Let me encourage you to do that too. Because you see, one of the things that I, I did in my life before I got in the Word, every time we would have a revival, I would attend every night. And I would get on fire for God. And I would have such good intentions. And in 10 days' time... It was gone, and it was like a, just a memory. Well, God, what happened? I, I had good intentions. I want to say to you, if you have made any commitments to the Lord these last four days, 
It will be a distant memory in 10 days' time if you don't get into the Word. Let me encourage you to meet that old spiritual rattlesnake every day. Having your gun, having your, your uh, spiritual armor on, when we go out on our ranch, there is no way I'm going out there without good shoes on, with my snake leggings on, with the gun, and with bullets. And then praying, Lord, please don't let me see a snake, and please don't let a snake see me. But when you, don't, when you have not prepared, it would be like meeting up with that old rattlesnake. And you know that spiritual rattlesnake's coming every day. And you pull your gun out and, it, and you reach for your bullets. And it's like, oh my gosh, I left my bullets at home. This is your bullet, y'all. Let me encourage you. It's on the table right outside. Please pick one up and see if it might be something that you can do to get close to the Lord and begin to know him. Margaret alluded to the fact that we often make commitments and we often really feel very strongly about the commitments we make and then the commitments go by the wayside. And that's what the lesson is about tonight, making changes that last. And, and what's the secret? There is a secret to, to making a change for the Lord that lasts. And we want to share that with you tonight. The one thing that Margaret brought to the attention of all of us was that we must have an intimacy with God. It, it's not a God in the sky type relationship. So many people attending church have the, have the thought of, okay, God's up there overlooking me and watching what I do and trying to make sure that uh, I do the right thing and when I don't, he's going to zap me. That's not what the scriptures tell us. The scriptures say that God wants to come in and to literally take up residence in us, lead us, guide us, provide for us, empower us, work within our lives every day. I showed you the hand deal. Here you are doing your thing. Some, one day someone introduces you to Jesus Christ. You decide that you want to come and bow down your life to him and come into the in Christ relationship. And you come into this position in Christ. And most of the passages of Scripture that deal with the promises of God in the New Testament say that those promises will come true in Christ, in this position. And as I said the other day, you know, you can take over any time and where lordship, this is the lordship position, this is where all the power is, is available to you because he is the power, he is eternal life, he has access to God, and when we're bowed down to him and surrendered to him and letting him run our lives, we have all of that. But so many times we decide, I want to take over, and we come into this position, which is the carnal position, where our flesh takes over and we do what we want to do. Is he still there? Yes, we're still in Christ, but it's no longer lordship. It's no longer spirit-led. What we're doing is what we want to do. And I hate to say it, but this, this is where most people try to operate, is they, they've received Christ, but they've never made him Lord. They've never yielded their life completely to him. And so they're trying to make it work, and they're trying to do all they can do to make it work, and it's not working. It's like Margaret said, Lord, there's got to be more to this. Here she was. And what I want you to just grab hold of is this idea that we have an opportunity to enter into an in Christ relationship that is an eternal relationship 
And when we make him Lord and we yield our life to him, he can take over and do in us the things we couldn't possibly do in ourselves. We have eternal life because he is eternal life. Many of us have some strange ideas about how to get to heaven. I read one. I got to read this one to you. This is too good. A little boy caught in some mischief was asked by his mother, how do you expect ever to get to heaven? The little boy stopped a moment and he thought and he said, well, I will just take and I will run in and out of the door and in and out of the door and slam the door every time I go and eventually someone will say, either come in or go out and he said, I'll come in and I'll be in, Mom. (laughs) Jesus clearly tells us there is a way for us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life when we are in him. We have heaven. We have power. We have everything that we need to live a fruit-filled life. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were extremely religious. They lived in strict adherence to the law. I mean, you can't believe how strict their lives were. But more than once, Jesus said to them that they didn't have much of a chance to get into heaven. They strictly obeyed the law. They did everything that they should do under the law, and yet Jesus said, you don't have much chance. To accomplish his goals, Satan has put together this clever counterfeit for Christianity. It's called religion, a counterfeit Christianity, religion. But what religion is really is carnal Christianity. We have received Christ, and we're trying to make it work, and we're doing everything we can under our religious banner to make it work. Attend church, I read my Bible occasionally, I pray at my meals, and, and I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to be good to other people. I'm doing everything I can to make this religion work. I want us to look at the passage that I shared with you on Sunday. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as, uncar- as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? The word brethren tells us he's talking to Christians. But he's saying, you're acting just like the world acts. And so I can't talk to you in spiritual terms. I can't work with you in spiritual terms because you're nothing but worldly. And one of the translations actually uses the word worldly. And that's what we're faced with today in the religion environment, is we have a lot of people doing religious things, but having no clue of what the reality of the Christian life is about. I want to show you what the reality is about. And it's a little passage that many of us have known and heard, 
but I want to show it to you from the standpoint of it actually defines the eternal life that we should be experiencing. It says, now this is eternal life. This is what we should seek. This is what we should want in our life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now the key word is know. There's two Greek words that can be translated know. One is ido, which, which literally is translated mean, meaning having a knowledge of. But that's not the word that's used here. Gnosko is the word that's used here in the Greek. And gnosko tells us that we will have an intimacy. It is about intimacy, an intimate relationship with someone. That's the word that's used here. So what it's saying, it's not that we should have a knowledge of God, but it's the fact that we should have an intimacy with him. We should should have an in-depth relationship with him. I would like to compare the life in Christ, in Christ, with with the religious Christian and his life in his religion. I want to say to you, as Margaret said, I am not discounting church attendance, but I want to stress to you that the Christian life is not solely about church attendance. Is church attendance a vital part of the Christian life? Absolutely. But please do not think that by attending church, you are being the Christian you need to be. And it's so important that we get hold of that. Religion versus Christianity. I'm going to try to do this and explain this as I go. Religion says man is looking for God. We are searching for God. We, we want to find him. Christianity says no, God is seeking man. When you look in the scriptures, one of the most startling things that I came to early on in my Christian life was the reality that God really wanted to have a relationship with me. It was his desire that all people come to him, including me. And that's the thing that in religion, we have to go out and look for God and and, and try to find him in the right church, in the right place, in the right book. And yet, what is reality in the Christianity is the fact that God is looking for you. The second thing, religion, man must do something for God. We've got to go out there and be doing stuff. Man, I've got to get out and witness. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. I've got to do all this stuff. But Christianity says, no, it's not so much what we do, but rather it's what God will do. What, what God does within us, the changes he makes in our life, the way he uses us, the, the things that he prompts us to do, that's Christianity. It's not about what we do for him, it's about what he does for us. Religion, man can become. If you work hard enough and you really strive and you keep all the rules and regulations, you can become holy. Christianity says, 
God is holy, therefore we are holy. You see the difference? It's not up to us. It's not up to what we do. It's not up to how we act. It's the fact that when we are in this position, we are holy because we are in Him. And He is holy. And that is enough to prompt us when we realize that we have His holiness living within us that we don't want to sin because we love Him so much and the way that He's working in our life. The next one, religion. We earn God's favor by what we do. No, again, it's not what we do, but it's what Christ does in us. We don't have to earn God's favor. Think about that. I want you to think on that for just a moment. We don't have to earn God's favor. We have his favor when we are in his son. His son is everything to him. When he looks upon us in Christ, all he sees is the blood of Christ covering us up. And he sees his wonderful son. We don't have to earn anything from him. Now, will we obey him? Yeah, isn't it funny? I read it yesterday. Those who love me will obey my commandments. As we love him, what's our motive for obeying the commandments? Our motive is our love for him. The last one, religion glorifies the work of man. Christianity glorifies the work of God. Okay, are you beginning to see a little bit of the difference of what I'm talking about? Okay, let's take it into practical application. The carnal Christian, this is the person who is doing all the right things to try to reach and obtain a right relationship with God. And they're, they're striving and they're constantly working at trying to uh, reach the standard that God wants them to have. The carnal Christian seldom seeks God's leadership because the carnal Christian is doing his thing. He's making the decisions. He's doing all the things that need to be done. He doesn't seek God. He doesn't go to the Word and ask God to show him what needs to be done. The carnal Christian's doing it himself, and so he makes his own decisions, and he very seldom ever seeks the leadership of God. The carnal Christian goes to church because it's the right thing to do. I mean, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to go to church, and so... I'll go, even though I really don't want to, but it, you, you're supposed to go on Sunday, so I'll go. The third one, the most painful one, the carnal Christian seldom reads the Bible. I don't need to say anything there, do I? The carnal Christian seldom reads the Bible because he really doesn't expect the Bible to say anything to him. The fourth one, the carnal Christian has a limited prayer time, usually limited to the blessing of food. Uh, not always, but usually they will. 
Sometimes they'll pray in a dire emergency, but most of the time they don't have time for prayer. They don't take time for prayer. The carnal Christian doesn't expect to see God's supernatural miracles. It's not, there's no anticipation of God working a miracle. He, he just, he's never really experienced any miracles because he never really believed that he would see a miracle. That's carnality. That's the flesh. The next one, the carnal Christian doesn't believe that God will communicate with us today. God used to communicate to his people. That's shown throughout the scriptures, but today he really doesn't communicate. I've, I've never ha had God talk to me, so therefore he doesn't talk. He doesn't communicate. And the carnal Christian has to see it to believe it. Isn't it amazing that God's word says just the opposite? He said, that which you can see is not real. That which you can't see is the eternal thing. So there's the carnal Christian. There's where so many of the people sitting on pews today are living. They're living in this position trying to make it work, trying to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. They want to be a good Christian. And they're going about it in their own self-effort, trying to make it happen. But let's look at the spiritual Christian. The spiritual Christian always seeks God's leadership. The spiritual Christian is constantly looking for God's leadership on every decision that they make. They're looking and anticipating he's going to speak or anticipating he will open some door. And when that door is open, when that uh, word comes, they immediately go and do exactly what God has led them to do. That's the spiritual cre uh, Christian seeking God's leadership. The spiritual Christian is also extremely conscious of his actions and the effect his actions have on other people. The carnal Christian really is not concerned, but the Christian, the spiritual Christian, is extremely concerned. He is the witness to the world of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's spirit living in him. He wants that spirit to be shown to the people around him, so he's constantly aware of his actions. The spiritual Christian literally stays in a continual state of prayer. Seeking God, praising God, thanking God, all the things related to him because he is Lord. And the spiritual Christian knows it. And the spiritual Christian knows that prayer is the way that we communicate to God. It's the power of our communicative process to him. The fourth thing, the spiritual Christian continually goes to the Scripture expecting to hear from God. The one who has the Spirit living in him, the one that truly understands that the walk of the Christian is a walk led by the Spirit, will constantly go to the Word of God to seek what he should do in what situation he's in. 
And he anticipates that God's going to reveal to him from the Word. And so it's a priority in the, in the spiritual Christian's life. Bible study and prayer are priorities. The fifth one, the spiritual Christian recognizes the perfectness of God's actions and timing. And he is satisfied to wait on God. He knows that God, if God's saying no now, maybe he'll say yes later when it's the right time. But if it's no now, that's okay because God knows what's best for me. And his only timetable is the Lord's timetable. And the last one, believes the Holy Spirit can do in him what he himself cannot do. And this is where the joy comes for the spiritual Christian. When we recognize that we are worthless and we really can't do much, and then we come to a place where we say, Lord, whatever you want to do, I want you to do it in me, and we see him take us and make us into something, and, and he works a great work through us, and we recognize that we couldn't have done that apart from him, and he did it. There's no greater joy than that. Hundreds of thousands of church-going people are being deceived. They think, they think they are saved because one day they walked an aisle and took the preacher's hand and did everything that they were told to do. But today, they have an empty shell of the Christian life because they have literally missed what salvation is all about. I want to try to show you that we need to look at the difference between knowing about God, that's religion, and knowing God. You see, religion, the object of religion is to learn all you can learn about God so that you can do the things that you've got to do. Christianity is about understanding that is about knowing him with an intimate relationship, a relationship of interaction, a relationship of love and care and concern. I want Margaret to tell you another story, if she would. Well, let's describe this many years ago. We were doing a financial freedom seminar, and we had done this many times, and so I really wasn't paying much attention, and I kind of had my head down, and all of a sudden, out of his mouth comes, how many of y'all know who Bill Clinton is? Now, I'm not kidding you, my head came up like this, and I, this was when Bill Clinton was president, it was right at the height of the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and I'm thinking, what is he doing? And I just start looking daggers through him, trying Pretty to scary. get him to look at me so I can mouth, what are you doing? And he would not look at me. So I just kind of sunk down in my seat like I'm not with him. But this is what he said, and I'll never forget it. He said, how many of you know who Bill Clinton is? Well, everybody knew. He is president of the United States. How many of you can tell me some facts about Bill Clinton? Oh, yeah, a lot of, lot of, knew, know a lot of stuff about him. But then he said the strangest thing. He said, how many of you have sat down with Bill Clinton this week and just poured your heart out to him, just shared your life with him? How many of you have called him on the phone this week and just just told him what was going on in your life. And, of course, everybody went, well, nobody. And he said, you see how you can know all about a person and you can know who they are? 
but you still don't know them personally? Y'all, that's where I was when I was crying out to God in that sanctuary. I knew who Jesus was. I'd been in church all my life. I knew all the facts. I knew all the Bible stories. But y'all, facts never saved anybody. But you know what? I didn't know him deeply, intimately, and personally until I got into the Word. Our intimacy with him, and that's what people always ask at this stage, well, how do I become intimate with him? Our intimacy with him comes as we live in him, interact with him, and yield our lives to him. It's the in Christ position summed up in saying, if we live in him, we interact with him, we're constantly talking and sharing with him and seeking from him, and we yield our lives totally to what he wants, then we're going to build an intimacy that will last. How do we do that? Well, the scriptures have three pretty good descriptions in Galatians 2.20, the power uh, verse. It says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the in Christ position. I live in him, he lives in me. His life flows through me. I live by faith, believing that he can work through me. And he does. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4, and this is Paul making this statement, the greatest of all evangelists. He said, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. Paul was saying, I can't do it. I'm terrified. But I know that the spirit living in me can do it. So I'm coming to you. Even though I'm afraid, I'm coming to you in order for you to see the power of God working in me. And you will be changed but by what he does through me. And the last one, Romans 7, 6. And I have to tell you a story about this. I was studying being freed from the law. I'd been working on it for three months. I came in one morning, and I said to my administrative assistant, I said, I'm going in my office, and I'm not coming out until I understand what being freed from the law is. She looked at me, and she said, Les, we may never see you again. (laughs) And I went in the office, and I had been studying Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6. Those are the passages that deal with being freed from the law. And I'd been studying them diligently for three months, trying to understand, why would I want to be freed from the law when I want to obey the law? And and my concept was that I was to obey the law. Why would I want to be free from it? And I couldn't understand that. But I went in that morning, and I prayed. I literally got down on my knees, and I prayed, and I said, God, help me to understand this. I know that that there's got to be something that I'm missing. Because it doesn't make sense to me. And it's plain as day, God said, go to Romans 7. And I turned to Romans 7. I had not been to Romans 7 because I really hadn't found anything in there that really had ministered to me at all. So I hadn't spent a lot of time there, but I went to Romans 7. And when I read 7, 6, 
God filled up the room. He literally filled up the room. I, I have had a few encounters with God, but nothing like that day when he filled up the room. And here's what he said. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, my concept was I want to learn the code and the written code so I can obey the rules and regulations and be a good Christian. That was my concept. This told me, no. Said you need to be released from all the rules and regulations so that you serve in a new way. Not in the old way of keeping the rules and regulations, but in a new way, letting the Spirit of God lead you. The Spirit of God will never lead you to unrighteousness. He will always lead you to righteousness. And when you begin to live with Him being Lord, seeking Him, interacting with Him, asking Him what to do, leading, uh, being led by Him, He will lead you to the righteous life. He will lead you to the victorious living. And that's what I found in Romans 7, 6. So how do I have an intimacy with God? I begin to understand that what we must realize, it's not about religion. Man reaching up to God with all our good works and all of our faithfulness and all of our knowledge of Him, but rather it's about Christianity, what He does in us as we yield our life to Him. No verse in the entire New Testament says it better than Romans 8, 1 through 4. If you will turn to that, please. And depending upon your interpretation or your translation, uh, this is a little different, but in the fourth uh, in the fourth verse, it's clarified completely. But look at Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, some of you don't have that in there, but you're getting ready to see it in just a moment. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What's walking after the flesh? That's us doing everything. What's walking after the Spirit? We seek the Spirit's guidance and we do what the Spirit leads us to do. It's not up to us, it's up to Him. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The most important passage of this whole thing or the most important statement in this whole teaching is found right here. In a lordship relationship, we are not in control. The Lord is. We center our desires upon his will and not ours. 
We have no desire for anything that he does not put in our life. That's lordship. Lord, I don't want anything in my life that is not from you. I don't want anything in my life that you don't want. And so what switches is our motive now is our absolute love for him, and that allows us to do the difficult things we have to do. If I'm trying to do it in the flesh and trying to be good and avoid what is wrong, I'm going to fail every time because I have the wrong motive. I'm trying to do it myself instead of letting him do it in me. When you make Jesus Lord, you begin to seek his leadership in every area of your life. And this is when you start to find the victory. But Les, I understand all that, but how do I live a spiritual life? How do I develop intimacy with God? And I'm going to say to you, and, and I want you to listen, and this is why this is the last night that I'm saying this to you, because I want you to take this with you. There is only one way to develop an intimacy with God. There is only one way. Turn, if you would, to John 1, 1. We know this verse, the first verse, and then three, down through five, but listen to what it says. And I've highlighted, I've highlighted, I've highlighted I can't even speak, I've highlighted the word because I want to bring special attention to what this passage is saying. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Who's the word? Jesus Christ. That's what it's describing. Listen to Revelation. Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that was no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a short, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Who is it that is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords? 
Jesus Christ. His name is the Word of God. 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, have touched, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was in the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Who is the word of life? Jesus Christ. And the one that I read just a moment ago, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. There's only one person that fulfills that, and that's Jesus Christ. So how do we develop intimacy? The Christian faith is about a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. When you open up the Word and spend time in the Word, who do you think you're spending time with? The Word is Jesus Christ. Can you understand that what we're asked to do is we're asked to develop a relationship with a person we can't see, but we can experience him? And how do we experience Jesus Christ? Through the Word. Those passages all said Jesus is the Word. He is the Word. His name is the Word of God. How can we know Him? How do we experience Him? One way. The intimacy is developed as you spend time with Him. And how do you spend time with Jesus Christ? Think about it. We work with relationships all the time. How do you think we tell a couple to build the relationship? Spend time together. Share your lives with each other. Depend upon each other in times of trouble. Interact with each other. Trust one another. And communicate with each other. That's how you build a relationship. That's how you build intimacy. And this is what we must do if we're going to have an intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ is we must spend time with him in the word. Now let me explain to you how this works. The word literally is the, the logos of God. It is the revelation. He is the revelation of God. It is through the Word of God that we have an understanding of who God is because He has chosen the Word of God to reveal to us the truth that He wants us to have for us to live our life. And so as we come to the Word and we study the Word and we interact with the Word, then we're going to begin to understand what God wants us to know. He wants to show us His power. He wants to show us his, miraculous work, his miraculous work. 
But the only way that intimacy can come to us that we need to make that happen in our life is when we are spending time with him. No time with him, no intimacy. With no intimacy, there's no lordship. No lordship, there's no victory. How much time today are you spending with the Lord on a regular basis each day? If it's less than 20 minutes a day, what kind of a relationship can you have with him? If he is the word and he reveals himself in the word, how much time do we spend with him today to get to know him and for him to get to know us and for us to come to understand what he has? When you open the word, do you open the word and read the words on the page? See, many people, for them, I have a Bible study guide, and so I open up my Bible study guide, and I see that today, uh, let's look and see, today I think is the fourth or fifth, is it fifth? The fifth, today I would be in Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now, if I am a carnal Christian seeking to do what I need to do to win favor with God, then I will read this passage, and I'll read it, and I'll read the words, and I will say, okay, I've read the word, I've been in the word. And what have I experienced? You've experienced the reading of the word. But did you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ? Not if you read the words, not if it was just the words on the page. The way you encounter him is when you come to the Bible, you open it up, and you say, Lord, as I read, speak to me. You see, the revelation of God comes as the Spirit speaks to you about what the words on the page are saying. Bible study is not, not about reading the words that are on the page Bible study and interaction with God and Jesus Christ and getting to know him is about taking the words on the page and letting him tell you what the words are saying about your life today. It is a, it is a process of revelation. It is not the words on the page. And that's what so many people say. I read the Bible and it doesn't really tell me anything. I don't understand what it's saying. And isn't it amazing, the scripture says, the, spirit, the, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. When we're a carnal Christian seeking to read the Bible to please God, then we've missed what the Christian life is all about. We should be going to the Word, anticipating that God's Spirit is going to speak to us and transform us and give us leadership so that we can live our life victoriously. And as we go to the Word and we read the words on the page, asking Him to interpret the words on the page and giving us into our hearts what we need to transform us, then we have the equipment to do the things we need to do to be effective as a Christian. Let me challenge you to get a spiral notebook. And I forgot my notebook in the car, but I have a little notebook, a spiral notebook, a uh, Walmart special cost a dollar and 39 cents. It's about as big as that Bible. And I take and write in that 
little spiral notebook. Margaret mentioned her journal. You ought to see the stacks of journals around our house that Margaret has written in. But you take that little spiral notebook, you take this reading plan, and when you start to read that day, you say this little prayer, Lord, speak to me today. Show me something that I've never seen before or never heard. Help me to understand what you want me to understand in these passages that I'm going to read. You pray that little prayer. I write that prayer down every day. I write that prayer down. And I ask him to show me something new. And when you pick up the word and you begin to read the word, you listen not to what the words on the page are saying to you. You listen to that little spirit that's within you that speaks with a voice about that big. You listen to what he's saying. Because he's the one that's going to tell you the truth. It's an amazing thing when we begin to understand this. Experiencing the word. Romans 10, 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard. The message is not seen. But the message is heard through the word of God. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of God. I want to give you some, some background here that was very revolutionary to me a few months ago when I was preaching a sermon in a church. I want to read these to you, and I want you to write these down, and you visit them yourself. But John 14, 26, But the Comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Who is it that's going to teach me? Is it the words on the page that are going to teach me? No, it's the Spirit going to teach me, the Holy Ghost. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus is telling us, I've got to go. I have to leave. But if I leave, I will send the Spirit to you. But I have to go in order to send you the Spirit. John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Who's going to guide you? The words on the page? No. The spirit will guide you to all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from, my, taking from what is mine and making it known to you. John 15, 26. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Now I had an encounter with God again when I read in Acts 2, 32, 33, as I was preparing this message upon the dove descending upon Jesus Christ at his baptism. That's what my message was about. 
And I came to this passage here, and suddenly something made sense to me for the first time. Here's what it says. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God the Father, now pay attention here, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And in those of you who are familiar with the context of Acts 2, 32 and 33, this is Pentecost. And they were witnessing the coming of the Spirit. And here it is said that the promise was poured out and it came from where? It came from Jesus Christ who had gotten the Spirit from God. Now what my sermon was about was when Jesus came out of the baptismal waters after John had baptized him, God's Spirit came upon him and empowered him to do ministry. He was empowered to do ministry when the Spirit came upon him, and that is also said in Acts. And the ministry power was given to him, and he had that power the whole time he was in, on earth. But at the crucifixion time, when he was separated from the Father, the power was taken back by the Father. The moment that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he petitioned the Father to give him the Holy Spirit so that he could give back to us the Holy Spirit. And that's what all those verses are telling us. Now here's what I want you to walk out of here with tonight. That spirit that lives in you when you are in Christ under the lordship of Jesus Christ and he lives in you, that spirit living in you is the very same Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was anointed with when he was on earth. Folks, we have the power. Our struggle is we don't believe it. I want you just to stop and think about the Spirit was put upon Jesus Christ empowering him to ministry. Jesus comes back to God and says, give to me the Spirit. I want to give it to them. That's what the Scripture said. It's right up there. He asked for the Spirit. He gave, God gave him the Spirit and he pours out the Spirit onto us. We have that spirit living in us. God, the power of God. And what we must understand and what we need to get hold of is when we are in the word and we ask the spirit, reveal to me what I need to do. Show me what tomorrow is going to bring. Help me to understand. Folks, when he starts speaking to you, and as I said, it will be in words that are about that big, you have your pen in your hand and you have your notebook there, you start writing down what he's saying to you about what the words on the page are being interpreted by the Spirit. What the Spirit tells you that you need to understand, you start writing those down. You listen to the Spirit within you and you write down. And what I find is I write down, many times I don't even understand what I'm writing down, but I write exactly what he says to write. 
And then I will go on and I'll read a little further or he'll take me to another passage or, or I'll see down at the bottom a note that, that gives me an idea to look up something else. And I'll go and I'll find that little voice speaking to me and I write it down, I write it down, and I write it down. And when I get finished, the close that I have every day is, Lord, what have you told me? And I go back and I read and then I try to make a summary paragraph, the last paragraph, and I say, Lord, this is what I understand that you're saying to me, and this is what I understand you want me to do. And then, folks, I try with everything that is within me to yield myself to his spirit so that he can empower me to go out and do what he's just told me to do. And many times it's a very scary thing he asks you to do. But every time that I've gone out and do it, I've seen a miracle. That is the Christian life. That's intimacy with God. It's not about rules and regulations and going to church. It's about having an intimacy with him so that he can speak to you, he can reveal himself to you, and he can transform you. As we take in God's word, as we ask the Spirit to lead and guide us, we begin to meditate on what the Spirit says to us, and we begin to seek to do what He says for us to do. Little by little, God's character becomes our character. That is the Christian life. If you're here tonight and you do not have a vibrant study time, my question for you is how do you get to know him? How do you develop intimacy with him? How can he lead and guide you? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. That is the Christian life.